0: For this morning is from Deuteronomy 5 verses 12 through 15. Keep the Sabbath day and treat it as holy, exactly as the Lord your God commanded. Six days you may work and do all your tasks, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Don't do any work on it, not you, your sons or daughters, your male or female servants, your oxen or donkeys, or any of your animals, or the immigrant who is living among you, so that your male and female servants can rest just like you. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt, but the Lord your God brought you out of there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. That's why the Lord your God commands you to keep the Sabbath day. Good morning.
1: My name is Megan and I'm the teaching pastor at Trinity. And before we jump into the teaching this morning, one announcement got forgotten. Um, so let me just share with you that we are glad to announce that Eric uh, Vincent and Ron Kilmer were both affirmed as leadership team members for this coming year by greater than 99% affirmation vote. So we are delighted to welcome them. We will have a commissioning for them coming up, a prayer commissioning, and a thanks to Ben Shuttler, who's been serving on the team, so stay tuned for that, but we wanted to let you know about that vote. Um, please pray with me as we approach God's Word this morning. God, we thank you that you have words of truth and life to speak to all aspects of our existence. We pray that this morning, as we reflect on play and leisure and just what it means to be disciples of you there, that you would give us fresh vision, fresh imagination, and just a real joy in thinking about what it means to live a life with you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. You know, something funny happened to me this last week that rarely happens to me as a preacher. I had put together this sermon series, Everyday Sacred, to look at God's presence in all these areas of life where we often don't think about God's involvement, and I had just the word play as the only word in my outline for this week in the sermon series, and I sat down and looked at it last week, and I suddenly had this moment where I went, I don't even know what to say about this because I can literally not think of a word I've ever heard any other Christian speak on this subject. Aside from two, I remember being told that Christians shouldn't slow dance and that Harry Potter was bad. <laughs> like that, that's all I got as a starting point. How is it that this enormous part of our life, right, What we, we work eight hours, give or take a day, we sleep part of the day, there's this whole segment of our life that we never have a conversation about. Like what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus in the stuff we get to choose, right, even in the fun stuff? Well, let's just start here, kind of back back the train up. Where where do we even begin thinking about God's presence in play? Um, Well, last week when we were talking about work, we were looking at the story of creation, and we talked about how in the creation story, God works, creates the world for six days, and then God takes a rest, And it's easy to skim past that, but that's kind of a weird thing. It's not like God needs a nap after working hard for a while. That's not what's going on in the story. And last week, I told you one of the things that's going on is that after those six days of creation, God has created human beings in the image of God as creators themselves. And part of what God is doing on that day of rest is stepping back so that human beings can join the work of creating. That's one of the purposes of this seventh day of rest for God. But there's a second purpose. If you read the creation accounts in the ancient world that the Israelites were a part of, one of the things you'll find in the creation accounts of other cultures in that day is that most cultures in in the time that the Genesis account was written had this belief that the, the gods made human beings because they needed slaves. There was this whole kind of pantheon of gods out there who had work that needed to be done, and they were like, I don't want to clean the toilets. Do you want to clean the toilets? None of the gods want to clean the toilets. We We need some slaves out there. We need some servants to do the stuff we don't want to do. And so, hence the creation of humans. Now, the Genesis creation story says nothing like that. In the Genesis creation story, God is living in full contentment. Um, from a Christian perspective on Genesis, we'd say God is trinity. God is three in one. God was already living in this community of love. God didn't need anything. God didn't need company. God had company. God didn't need slaves. In fact, God had this whole heavenly court of angels whose purpose is to serve God. So, so why human beings? Well, in the Genesis account, human beings are created for joy, like we're created because God simply wanted us. In this account, you hear this refrain again and again, like, this is good. This is good. This is really, really good. Like, God is making something for the sheer overflowing joy of creating and enjoying the creation. And so it makes sense after all of this, ooh, 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 as God's creating, at the end of six days of this, God says, hey, I really like what I've done. It's time to take some time to enjoy the thing that I made. I'm going to take a Sabbath. Sabbath. I'm going to celebrate what is. And you get these little hints uh, as the the story of Genesis unfolds. Um, If you think about it, uh, what does play look like to God? (laughs) Like, how how is this pictured? Um, Well, we looked at one of these verses last week, chapter 2, verse 19. God formed of the fertile land all the wild animals and the birds of the sky and brought them to the human to see what the human would name them. If you ask me, this appears to be God's idea of a good time, right? Like, I'm going to make some crazy stuff, and then I'm going to bring this to my new favorite creation, and we're going to see what he's going to say about it. And this isn't just creating, right? This is an act of play. This is God enjoying the creative activity with God's newest and favorite creation. In chapter 3 of Genesis, we're told that during the day's cool evening breeze— Adam and Eve, the first humans, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Um, What does this tell us? Well, number one, we have a picture here of God who's in the habit of strolling through the earth in the cool of the day. Why? Because it's awesome. Like, God is happy with what God made. God seems to be in the habit of walking through the garden. And second, when God calls, Where are you? It's not an accusatory, Where are you, Adam? It's like, I'm used to walking in the garden and I'm looking for my friends that I come to visit on a regular basis. I mean, the author of Genesis is suggesting God is sort of in the habit of enjoying the creation of humans, the creation of the earth itself. This is part of what God does. Uh, Some of you know one of my favorite books is the book of Job. This book doesn't get a lot of press in Christian circles, but there's this image at the end of the book of Job that always comes back to me that I just love, um, where where God is answering Job's concerns about humanity, about suffering, about the world, and God starts talking about this sea monster called Leviathan. It's a sea monster that all the ancient people had these legends about that would kind of rise out of the water and everybody was terrified. And God says this to Job, can you draw out Leviathan with a hook, restrain his tongue with a rope? Can you play with him like a bird, put a leash on him for your girls? Now, I love this image because God is suggesting, you know what, I'm so great, I'm so powerful that I play with sea monsters. Now, I have this image of like the, the bottom depths of the ocean where we don't even know what's down there. They're all these totally freakish creatures with like giant eyes and, and God is like present down there playing with these guys, Right? This is what God is boasting about to Job. Like, the stuff that scares the heck out of you, that's play for me. I, I enjoy the things I've made. I mean, some total here what we're saying is God actually likes the world. God is happy with, with this overall shape of this thing God has made. You aren't here. You are not on this planet because God needed a servant, primarily. You are primarily here because you make God happy. Because your existence adds to God's joy. That's why you're here. Because God had everything and God wanted someone to share God's treasures with. That's the big picture story of creation and our role in it. So so what's interesting is we get a a little bit later in the story, after creation, we get to these famous Ten Commandments. And basically, God is giving ancient people some basic instructions for, like, how are you guys going to be human together without killing each other? Just following, like, what are some basic principles that are going to allow human life to flourish? And most of the Ten Commandments are completely predictable. Like, if you looked at the, the kind of instructional codes of pretty much any culture at the time, you would see the same thing. Don't murder. Murder is bad. Don't steal. Stealing, not Not good be loyal to your God, whatever God you worship, be loyal. But there's one commandment in the Ten Commandments that's completely off the map. It's totally unexpected, and it takes up by far the most space of any commandment in the Ten Commandments. There's more kind of written about it than anything else. And that command is the command of Sabbath, which says, every seventh day, I want you not to work. Like, where did this come from? Why did this not only make the list of, like, top ten basic things to be functional as humans, but but to be the one that took up the most space, the most discussion? Well, there are two big things going on in this. Um, Number one, this is a protection against exploiting vulnerable workers, even animals. Like, if you are an employer every seventh day, you're supposed to give everybody and everything a break. But but the principle of what's going on in Sabbath is even kind of bigger and broader than that. It's not just against exploiting workers. What this seventh day, this rhythm, a weekly rhythm of rest, is meant to do is to honor the purpose of human beings and even animals in God's creation. I mean, God made friends, not just slaves. The pagan gods want only your labor, But the God of the Hebrews, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible wants you. I mean, the Ten Commandments and this kind of Sabbath as a centerpiece of the Ten Commandments says human life is functioning at its best when there is a rhythm between work and rest, between contributing to the common good and then stepping back to reflect and rest and enjoy That's not only just like a good thing to do, that is absolutely foundational to what will make human life work. It's absolutely foundational for you to fulfill your purpose as a human being, that life not be all labor, not just be service, but that it have a rhythm of work and rest to it. In the Gospels, Jesus talks about this idea of Sabbath a lot. He kind of famously has a lot of arguments about it, and you might think from the fact that Jesus is always arguing about Sabbath that he's like opposed to this idea from the Old Testament. But in fact, the reason Jesus is always arguing about this is because he thinks people have missed the point. Um, What had happened in the history of Israel is they'd heard this command about a rhythm of work and rest, and, and they'd basically taken it and turned it into a long list of rules of what not to do on Saturday, Or some of you grew up in communities, and know, where you had a list of like what not to do on Sunday. And it basically became a giant religious policing operation. Like the disciples are hungry, they haven't eaten all day, they're walking through a field, they touch a piece of grain to eat, and everyone's like, ah, working! And Jesus says, you know, this this kind of policing operation is an exercise in missing the point because, he says in Mark 2.27, let me tell you what the Sabbath was made for. The Sabbath was created for human beings. Human beings weren't created for the Sabbath. In other words, the, this wasn't some arbitrary idea of God's that like you just have to follow and it has to be policed because it's completely random and has no purpose. But the whole point of this was for you to create space so that you could rest and you could reflect and you could celebrate. And Jesus goes on to say in verse 28, this is why the human one is Lord even over the Sabbath. Or to put it in another way, your rest, your leisure, is a part of your discipleship. Jesus is Lord of your rest just like he's Lord over your work. He has something to say about it. So, so what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus in your rest? Well, a couple things come to mind for me. I mean, number one, it means that during our rest, part of what we're doing is we're fulfilling our purpose of being God's friends and not God's slaves. Like, you don't have to be doing something useful for God all the time to be valuable. Like, you're showing up enjoy your you're being present with God, you taking up Jesus and his offer of friendship, that is enough. That That's sufficient. A second piece of that discipleship, and this is really emphasized in the Jewish tradition, um, when we keep this rhythm of work and then rest, stopping our labor, part of what we're doing is remembering that we are not gods. The world does not require us to hold it together, right? And some of us who are hard workers, we get in this mode of like, everything will collapse if if I ever lay it down, if I ever stop, if I ever move aside. This is the moment once a week in a rather regular rhythm where we step back and we say, the world does not hang on me. My labor is not what's gonna hold this project together. And the irony, though, is that maybe the third component of discipleship. You've got the, this one part of, of resting of Sabbath that says we're not gods, but the other part is precisely because we are like God, and part of what it means to be like God is to take time to appreciate the goodness of what is. What is? God is a God who doesn't just labor, doesn't just work. God is a God who appreciates the goodness of creation. So part of keeping a Sabbath is learning to actually grow in the image of God by saying a yes where God says yes. By saying that is awesome where God says that is awesome. Like that's part of the work of discipleship. So let's talk about just briefly what does this mean as Americans who grow up in a particular society in a particular culture of work and rest. Like, where does this actually hit home for us? I, mean, I, I want to make kind of two observations about places. I think we have major cultural blind spots in this conversation. Um, number one, Americans are famously obsessed with work. Like, we we work more hours by and large than than almost any developed society. Um, we have all these, these sayings that have kind of entered our, our culture, these colloquial sayings that are like, idle hands are the devil's workshop. In other words, like, like, if I were to stop doing something for a moment, the only thing that could happen when I stopped is that the devil would immediately enter in and fill the vacuum. Right? That's kind of a, a twisted notion of like how we relate to our work and our rest or our play. Like, what we, we don't take our vacation time. We're, like, how many of us, I'm not going to take a poll here, but how many of us actually keep a Sabbath? Like, how, how many of us actually think about what kind of rhythm we're creating in our lives for work and rest? And the only thing that is meant to work 24-7, 365, is your iPhone, right? Like, the, the only thing that is meant to work at that ceaseless rhythm is a machine. Endless production, that's the devil's <laughs> playground, not, not idle hands, not rest, endless production, uh, what happens when you just produce and you produce and you work and you work and you work is eventually you don't have enough space to kind of reflect and even remember why you're doing what you're doing. This is how we, we end up caught in these kind of cycles of producing and consuming where we've lost our reason, we, we've lost a kind of vision even of who or what we're serving We start using ourselves and we start using people as if all we are are cogs in some giant economic machine. Like endless work, work above all as kind of the ultimate virtue, that's a deeply like American concept, but it doesn't reflect at all this biblical image of a God who works and rests and finds value in both of those. Now, our second kind of cultural blind spot has more to do with the question of, like, okay, so if we're going to stop working, if we're going to have this rhythm of rest or leisure, what should we do with that time? I think it's important to say from the outset, not all leisure is created equally. And when I say that, I'm not talking about legalism. We're not going back to the New Testament time and making a giant list of, like, what not to do. This isn't about a bunch of religious rules. This is about simply acknowledging that every single thing we give our bodies to and every single thing we give our minds to forms us as human beings. So the question of good leisure is really a question of how are the things that I'm choosing to do with my leisure time forming me? Like what is my leisure forming me toward? What is it shaping in me? What kinds of mindset, what kinds of behavior is my leisure reinforcing? This isn't about legalism. It's not about rules. It's just about asking yourself, what is your leisure forming in you? And this is where I think we just have a, a whole kind of range of cultural blind spots in this conversation because we don't ask that question about like, what is leisure forming in us? Um, one of the things that I think is a big blind spot for us is that there are some of us, Not gonna name names, but I know who you are. There's some of us who are running our leisure lives as another form of work. It's just a job we're not getting paid to do. Right, like we have so many things booked on our calendar. We're running from activity to activity and like we're more exhausted by Saturday night than we were on Friday. Like our leisure is actually making us tireder. It's making us more relationally disconnected. It's making us feel more disconnected from God. Because it's just like we're working two jobs. We're working the one we get paid for and then we're, we're working the calendar on the side. That's not leisure. That's not Sabbath. That's not rest. That's just unpaid work by another name. Right? Let's just put that on the table. Right? What, what we're talking here when we talk about real Sabbath leisure, real Sabbath rest, is something that renews and restores, not something that drains the last two ounces you had in your cup on Friday. Like, there's this kind of myth around American leisure that I don't even know how to quite talk about this, but it's just like more is better of everything, including leisure, but there's a certain point of not just diminishing returns, but the whole project backfires, right? Like, learning to stop is actually learning to stop. Um, Second big cultural blind spot, there's some of us who really confuse indulgence with leisure. And I'll tell you how this works, because I know this as well as, as some of you. What happens is during the week, you work yourself into a wreck, and then by Friday night, you just wipe out. And you order pizza, and you eat the ice cream straight out of the pint so you don't have to wash the dish, and you lay on the sofa in front of the TV, and 24 hours, you're still laying there in yesterday's clothes, right? Right? Like you have drained yourself to the dredges and now you're out and like you watched three seasons of the same show over the weekend. Now what's the problem with this? We don't have to overly moralize it. If you've done it like I've done it, you know what the result of it is. It's not renewal. It's not refreshment. You don't get to the end of your weekend and you're like, now I'm ready to participate in the rest of my life again. At that point, you're red-eyed and you're lethargic and your stomach hurts and your body feels terrible and you're dreading your life even more. Like indulgence behavior, it's, it's addiction behavior. Like we're acting out of a compulsion. But what, it, what it's doing, it's just like messing with our heads, it's messing with our bodies. Nothing is being renewed, nothing's being restored, nothing is being put back together. We're just kind of dissolving into a pool of disintegration. Indulgence and leisure aren't the same thing. Um, third thing, and I'm just going to touch this briefly, but I think this is really important. So much of our leisure in 2021 has becoming, become increasingly privatized. Like Once upon a time, there were situations where like, people might you know, get together for a barbecue or maybe group singing. That used to be a thing, right? Like, there are all these things we used to do when we were doing our leisure time. Dancing, we would do it together. Um, but what happens a lot now is we get to our leisure time and we're like, it's me and my tablet, me and my phone, like in some dark room, I don't even see anyone else in the house because we've all got our own device, and everything's done alone. It's not that being alone is inherently a problem, but the difficulty is like any, any even basic secular research study will tell you the thing that makes human beings happiest is human beings. It's relationships. It's, it's friendships. It's, it's the people that we invest in. And yet we've structured these habits of leisure where more and more of our time is driving us away from each other back into corners. And, and fourth, and, and this is kind of the broad, but I, I think the biggest blind spot for us is just our, our failure to recognize that everything we're doing in leisure is actually forming us. Leisure has a, a formational effect. Um, so much of what, the kind of leisure that many of us engage in today is technological. I mean, it might be TV, it might be Netflix, you might be skimming YouTube, it might be social media, it might be video games. And there's no reason to demonize any of that, like all of that can be good within its context. Um, We can connect over media. And even more than connection, I I think human beings are hardwired to love stories and to benefit from stories. Stories. This is what, one of the reasons why television is like so addictive for us. We are just hardwired in our brains to get sucked into a good story. But one of the things that it's important to remember while we engage all these forms of media that are telling us stories is that stories have formational effects. And in fact, the more compelling the story is and the, the more visual and sensory and compelling the medium is, the, the more the formational effect the story likely has. Like, good stories can form our imagination for all these amazing things. It can form us, our imagination for heroism. It it can form us to understand other people better. It it can form our imagination for acts of love and acts of sacrifice. There are certain stories that are my, like, go-to stories when I'm in need of courage. Like, they're completely fictional stories, but they remind me that I and other people are capable of acts of great courage and sacrifice. Stories can spur that in us. But stories can also form us away from the things we we want to be pursuing, right? They they can normalize things that aren't helpful for us. They, They can feed envy. They can feed lust. They can feed all sorts of desires in us. So when we're engaging in all of these highly sensory forms of entertainment, one of the questions we should be asking ourselves is, like, what kind of imagination is this story, this media, reinforcing in me? How are my desires being shaped by the things that I'm engaging? Like, human beings are beings of desire first and foremost. We act out of deep desires. So what desires are being fed in me as I engage this TV, as I engage these videos, as I engage on social media? Like, what is being shaped in my mind and my desires? Um, two big warning signs. Like, if you find that you are using these stories and these media if you are using them not to enjoy creation, but to escape it, to turn the world off, to turn the life off, to turn yourself off, that, that's probably a warning sign to watch out for. Right? Because it suggests this is a form of leisure that is not making you whole, it's not preparing you to engage, it's a form of leisure that's turning you off, that's pulling you back. Um, second thing, if you find that the things that you're engaging are making you more angry, more depressed, more envious, more insecure. If those are the things your forms of leisure are sort of producing or stirring up in you, that's a warning sign. Like, maybe there is a better form of leisure for me to be engaging so, so what is what does good leisure look like? Like, what would be the test for, for leisure that is fulfilling its positive purpose of shaping us as disciples of Jesus, as people in the image of God? Like, what does leisure look like that makes us more whole? Well, let me just toss five things out here. I think of this as maybe a, le- a leisure test for like what, what would good leisure look like. Um, number one. It's, good leisure celebrates something truly good about creation. It celebrates something that is truly good about the world. Um, number two, good leisure. It connects us more fully to ourselves, to God, and to other people. Good leisure is a connector of us to what's going on in us, of us to God, of us to others. It's relational. Um, Third thing, good leisure honors our bodies and renews our bodies as a key aspect of the goodness of creation that God has entrusted to us. Good leisure doesn't abuse our bodies, it honors our bodies as part of the good gift that God has made. Um, Fourth, good leisure, it stirs up our imagination for the good possibilities of the world. I am a huge fan of stories. Good, good leisure forms your imagination, but it forms it for the good possibilities of the world. It forms us for what can be. And fifth, good leisure, it stirs up our desires, our emotions toward love, toward joy, toward peace, toward patience and kindness and gentleness. Good leisure forms our desires in the direction of Jesus and the things he loves. Self-control too. too. That's like the hard one. (laughs) Good leisure forms those fruits of the Spirit in us. Again, this isn't about legalism, this isn't about rule-based religion, this is about learning to exercise our freedom as people of Jesus in ways that lead to the truest, fullest, most joyful life for us, for the people around us. And for some of us today may be kind of the wake-up call, maybe you've never thought about this aspect of your life at all, but today may be the wake-up call that the time has come for a new leisure plan that actually gives life rather than stealing life from you. I mean it's Sunday right how has your weekend been going I think it's it's so helpful and kind of illuminating to me to remember when I play like when we go into leisure when we go into our free time our play time we are celebrating we are feasting we are laughing in the presence of God It's not that God is only invested in our lives when we're working and doing something productive. God is invested in our play. God wants to enjoy life in the world with us. God is engaging it. God is approving it. God is present in our play. So the invitation is to to engage that play ourselves, to enter into that leisure in a way that is attentive to the presence of God and brings real life, real joy and really forms us as disciples of Jesus. So, uh, as we close today, I, I want to just do a little bit of a prayer exercise here and just invite a moment of listening. Um, we're just going to open ourselves to the presence of God in this space and, and spend a moment ourselves just reflecting in the presence of God on like what is our leisure life, what is our play life right now producing in us? And inviting the Spirit's fresh imagination, is there a way we can play together with God? God is inviting us into an act of play that is truly restorative, that truly appreciates the goodness of creation that God has made, that honors our body, that honors our relationships. Where are we now, and what might be the invitation to play with God? Let's spend a moment together listening. Holy Spirit, we are here, we are open. Speak to us of what you are imagining. God, we thank you that you are a God who delights in this world. You delight in the goodness of creation. You delight in the goodness of us. Show us what it means to honor you, to follow you, to apprentice you in our play and in our rest, just as we do in our work. We pray that you, by the power of your spirit, would break off the addictions and the compulsions that drive us, and that we would sense your quiet invitation into a play and into a leisure that truly renews, that restores and connects and appreciates. Jesus, we follow you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.